Hello, and welcome to the Charlottesville Quarantine Report for June 16th, 2020. This is a program which is increasingly becoming about community health in general. The COVID-19 pandemic is just one of many crises that affects the life and welfare of many Americans. Another is systemic racism. We know that racism and discrimination were written into our laws, particularly during the Jim Crow era. On this show, more about these efforts, Virginia's finances, and plans to reopen public and private colleges and university. We'll also hear from one of the people behind COVID Act Now, a national group that has been tracking metrics since the beginning. There was an electric response. Traffic went through the roof. Something like 2% of Americans visited the website in the 72 hours subsequent to our launch. I'm Sean Tubbs, the creator of the Charlottesville Podcasting Network. Let's get on with the show. The number of new daily cases of COVID-19 tracked by the Virginia Department of Health remains steady, with 380 new cases reported on Monday and 445 new cases reported today. The percent positive is now at 7.4%, down from 11.5% two weeks ago on June 2nd. The number of fatalities fatalities in Virginia is now at 1,570. The Charlottesville School Board on Thursday discussed a plan for how education might work in the fall. Under a recommended plan for Phase 3, students would go to school two days a week and would be at home the rest of the week. Students would still be able to opt for distance learning entirely if they should choose. The plan also acknowledges that schools might have to close again in the fall if there is a second wave. A state economic development agency has made an $80,000 grant to the Charlottesville Regional Chamber of Commerce to finalize a blueprint for local economic development efforts. The Go Virginia Region 9 Council has awarded the funding for Project Rebound, an initiative formed earlier this spring to help businesses rebound as Virginia moves through a series of reopening phases. The funding will pay for local training as well as to pay the firm KPMG to map out economic recovery action steps. All along, this has been a show about community health, and as we continue into a new normal, expanding the definition of community health is something I believe we must do. That means addressing the concerns of Black Lives Matter and other anti-racist efforts. Ever since racist images of Northam surfaced from his medical school yearbook, the governor has taken steps to try to address inequities. He expounded on this on Thursday. As you know, I created the commission to examine racial inequity in Virginia law last year. We know that racism and discrimination were written into our laws, particularly during the Jim Crow era, with the intent of enforcing segregation and subjugation of black and brown Virginians. And while many of those old laws have been overturned, in some cases the language remains in the acts of assembly. In just a partial review of those acts, the commission found nearly 100 instances of discriminatory language. We proposed legislation to remove those ugly words from our law books, and it passed just this past year unanimously. Today, I'm announcing that I'm extending the work of the commission and broadening its scope. The commission will now look at current state laws and regulations that create or perpetuate inequities with a focus on public safety, 
criminal justice, health, housing, and voting. It will propose changes to increase protections for minority and marginalized Virginians and provide policy recommendations for state agencies and institutions. I am very proud of the work the Commission has already done and look forward to seeing their proposals. We expect a report with recommendations by November the 15th. While Virginia may be seeing fewer new cases of COVID-19, that's not the case in other parts of the country. We've all seen news reports over the past couple of days about increasing coronavirus cases in several states. I'm glad to say that so far, Virginia is not seeing a spike in our cases. In fact, our metrics are continuing to trend downward. That said, I cannot emphasize strongly enough that this virus is still with us and everyone needs to continue to behave cautiously. On Thursday, Northam laid out what potential plans were for colleges and universities in Virginia. This is very important for communities across the Commonwealth that depend on such places for local economies. The guidance for institutions of higher education is similar. They can begin to reopen their campuses and offer in-person instruction. But they must follow all relevant guidance in the phases outlined in our Forward Virginia Plan and in public health guidelines. The institutions must meet certain public health conditions in order to reopen their campuses to ensure that there are positive trends in public health data and that their community has adequate surge health care capacity. Institutions must also submit comprehensive reopening plans to the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia, which will review their plans for compliance to relevant guidelines before they can proceed with reopening their campuses. Peter Blake, uh, who is our Director of the State Council of Higher Education, is with us today to discuss this guidance in greater detail. Peter, welcome. Thank you. Governor. We've been shaken by the events of the last several weeks. The conversations taking place in Richmond, my hometown for nearly 60 years, have been especially meaningful. What has happened recently is a manifestation of injustice and racism that, is, that has existed for too long. It is time to confront these inequities where we work and live. In higher education, as good as we are at instruction, research, and service, we still face many challenges around racial equity. Black and brown students attend and graduate at lower rates than other students. Our faculty members are not as diverse as our students. The way we finance our higher education system is imperfectly aligned with what we say we want from our colleges and universities. Yet we strive to improve. There is no other option. Because of the leadership of Governor Northam, Chev recently received a grant from the Lumina Foundation, one of the most significant national nonprofit organizations that invests in higher education. The purpose of the grant is to close achievement gaps in higher education. That's a priority for the governor and for Chev. As Virginia moves forward, there's much work to do. The COVID-19 pandemic threatens the gains we have made in closing learning gaps, as we heard earlier this week. The digital divide is real and contributes to these learning gaps. Expanding student access to devices and broadband is mission critical, especially now. 
The reopening guidance the governor unveiled today places public health at the forefront. The governor also challenges our educators to ensure that high quality teaching and learning is preserved and enhanced. The plans institutions develop will protect our students, faculty and staff and forge a path of opportunity and equity in the years to come. It was for this very sake of keeping Virginians safe that on March the 30th, the governor ordered all of Virginia's public and private colleges and universities to cease in-person instruction and limited access to campuses to essential personnel only. As we have moved from phase one to phase two, and as we anticipate phase three, institutions across the state are beginning to put plans in place to safely reopen their campuses. The guidance the governor announced today, one of the first of its kind in the nation, covers all public and private degree-granting institutions. Three months into the pandemic, and we are in the midst of a recession and economic downturn that means and indicates we're still in a period of history where things are still going to change. On Thursday, Northam and his cabinet provided some updates to the financial numbers. As we all know, the restrictions on businesses and public events during this pandemic have resulted in losses of jobs and of income, uh, and our state revenues uh, absolutely reflect that. Uh, for May, our revenues are about 20% below where they were in May of 2019. However, this is slightly better than we anticipated, uh, and I'd like to ask our Secretary of Finance, Aubrey Lane, to uh, come forward and to put these uh, figures in context. Aubrey, thank you. Thank you, Governor. Aubrey Lane, Secretary of Finance. <clears throat> As the governor mentioned, it was about 90 days ago when the state first started beginning to feel the impacts of the COVID-19, not only on our businesses, but also on our state revenues. And as you recall, obviously the governor has said from the very beginning, this public health crisis was gonna result in an economic crisis. It was a time of a lot of uncertainty, not only related to the health crisis, but some of the actions that we took, like delaying income tax payments that would normally come in in May 1st to June 1st, really complicated how we would look at the revenues for the final quarter of our year, which ends June 30th. So at that time, based on the data we had, we estimated that we would be down about a billion dollars for this fourth quarter uh, in, the, in, the, in the fiscal year of 2020. And if you go back and look, in, uh, in April of this year, our revenues were down 26%. And the governor has just announced that as of May, our revenues were down another 20%. And this represents about $800 million below what our projected revenues were going to be for the quarter in our, and for year to date in our plan. And as I said, we projected that to be a billion dollars. So this is better than where we were thought we were going to be because remember, in June, all those tax payments that would have come in in May or April in the previous year are now going to come in uh, in the month of June. So almost all of the loss that we've incurred so far is in what's called non-withholding or the payment of payroll taxes from the previous year and some estimates for the current year. So while we have about 19 days left in our fiscal year, it looks like we're going to be I won't say significant, but better uh, than what we projected. Now, I think this has to do for a couple of reasons. One, the underlying resiliency of the Virginia economy. Um, the governor has mentioned several times that we were very strong in our economics 
before we went into this. And that has helped us through this uh, time. In fact, if you look at payroll withholding, the largest portion of our revenues across all businesses for the months of April and May, we were down about four and a half percent. Now the headlines have been a lot more than that. I mean, some businesses have closed and they're obviously very significantly impacted, but many have been able to remain open because of teleworking and our defense reliance on defense spending and the federal government. In fact, some of our largest employers have seen hardly any decline in their payroll that they have paid the state over this period of time. It also has to do with the federal actions taken, whether it's through the monetary policy of making sure our financial markets work well and giving businesses confidence, but also the payroll protection plan where uh, the federal government gave money to businesses so they could retain their employees. And of course, by doing that, they were able to pay us. So this does not by any mean that everything is great and it's an all clear. It's still a very difficult time for the state and for many businesses. But you just heard the governor mention a few a little while ago about how the virus seems to be abating uh, in the Commonwealth. Well, while that's happening, business activity is picking up. And you saw the jobs report last month in the nation, we actually called back two and a half million workers. The same will hold true in Virginia because it appears that we're much closer to a bottom than we were a few months ago. And that doesn't mean it's gonna turn around quickly by any stretch. But what this does mean is that we will have good data points as we forecast our revenues for the new biennium budget. And so that will happen, the governor mentioned the other day, sometime in the month of July, and he will call a special session at his uh, pleasure sometime later in August, and we'll, we'll discuss all this, but just wanted to point out that with all the calls of uncertainty, it looks as if Virginia, at least through this fiscal year, is gonna be within what we thought was going to happen. The actions we took by the, the governor took by suspending discretionary spending, by suspending capital payments, uh, have also helped to build our cash reserves. So it appears that as we go into the end of this fiscal year and go into our next biennium budget, we'll be starting from a place that we can get a forecast from that would be meaningful and not just based on political rhetoric or some uh, headline that doesn't represent what the underlying economics are in the Commonwealth. The first question in the question and answer session related to university reopenings. Uh, Governor, first regarding the, um, the university guidelines here, I know some of the universities have already put out what their reopening plans are. Are those now moot or are these something that they'd already been working with the state on in regards to that and then switching to the protest topic as well? I know one of the- I'll Come back to that one, I'll come back to you in a second. Okay. Peter, do you wanna address the first part of that question? Thanks. So the question was um, the, many of the institutions have begun to put plans in place already and or have announced uh, what they might be doing this fall. And we have been working very closely with them uh, over the last several months. Uh, President Holton could mention that as well. But <clears throat> as, as the governor and I both have stated, these are individual institutional plans. So this guidance, they might need to enhance portions of them. But as a whole, uh, they're going to be able to incorporate whatever it is that this guidance does. So I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Let's hear this question, which goes to the other issue of our times. We've heard a lot this week about defunding the police, and Charlottesville has agreed to remove the school resource officers, police officers, from the school system. 
Let's hear this bit. With the protests, one of the messages that has come out of, about this is the, the defund the police, uh, removing you know, funding from police forces, putting into social services programs. Where, where do you stand on, on that call from protests? Yeah, I think a, a lot of semantics, uh, Cam, has been used, and, and certainly one of them is dismantling the police, and I, I certainly don't support that. Our, our police officers uh, provide a, a, a much-needed uh, uh, resource uh, to our, our communities. Um, when we talk about funding, I think we really need to, to talk about reform um, and the priorities of, of how we spend the funding. I think another area that's important to, to talk about is, is what I would call co-responding. Um, there are a number of individuals uh, that are uh, potentially breaking the law that have mental illness. And our police forces, uh, while they're trained somewhat in that, uh, I think it'd be much better to have someone that's, that's truly trained uh, in how to deal with mental illnesses. And so, uh, so that's been uh, discussed. Um, I think there are opportunities to uh, really get into the communities more uh, and, and make sure that people in our communities know that, that our police officers uh, are there to protect them and, and to make sure that they're safe and, and also that they're respected. Uh, the communities are, are respected. So, so that's an, an area. Um, De-escalation uh, techniques is something that, that we've all talked uh, a, a lot about. Um, and so, uh, and then finally, something that I have spoken about, Cam, in the past is, is body cameras. Um, and, you know, I think the, uh, the, the reason that the, uh, that the allegations were made in, in Fairfax was because of a body camera now. And I'm going to come full circle here with your question. Uh, body cameras, uh, there's, a, I think, a need for them, and, and it's a great resource, but, but they cost money. Um, and especially reviewing uh, the film, uh, and that, that falls into the uh, purview of the uh, Commonwealth's attorneys. So, so when we talk about defunding, I wouldn't look at it as defunding. I would look at it as how do we best prioritize the funding that we have, and so that's kind of a long-winded question, but that's the way I would approach it, and I think that's the way the police uh, uh, departments want to approach it as as we, uh, um, you know, discuss reform. You've been listening to Governor Ralph Northam's press briefing from Thursday, June 11th. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the group COVID Act Now has been tracking cases across the country in order to make policy recommendations about how states should react to the ongoing disease. As of this recording, the group is listing Virginia as having a medium COVID risk level. When I spoke with Jonathan Christ Tompkins of COVID Act Now this past Wednesday, the risk level had been at high. Let's listen to the interview. Can you just give us a brief overview of what COVID Act Now is and what your group is trying to accomplish? COVID Act Now is a data analysis and disease intelligence platform uh, to help Americans and decision makers better understand the COVID-19 pandemic. When did you guys form and, uh, you know, how long have you been, you know, were you prepared for this to happen? Is this something that you were sort of waiting around for a pandemic to happen? What was the genesis? 
We we uh, did not exist prior to, to COVID. So COVID Act Now formed when myself and three others were incredibly concerned with what we were seeing in northern Italy and around the world and the exponential growth happening in the U.S. and the flat-footed uh, response in terms of interventions to, to combat COVID. And so we uh, created an SEIR model and a website for the public to view it um, that projected different scenarios. And, and that's how we came into existence. And there was an electric response. Traffic went through the roof. Something like 2% of Americans visited the website in the 72 hours subsequent to our launch. And um, we've been at it ever since, adding more functionality and sophistication to the tools. And um, we're getting on three months um, being being around. Just out of curiosity, what's your traffic like now? I haven't checked recently. It's actually it's quite a bit lower than those initial 72 hours. Um, but I, I think we're at a, a steady, relatively steady state now. I think I was one of that 2% back early on. And I think actually, I think it was your site that helped me sort of understand what some of the, uh, what some of the urgency was here in Virginia back then. But it seems now that one of the functionalities and one of the things that you're offering is sort of a report card about where things are in three months into the pandemic in terms of, um, you know, in terms of what the metrics are. And you're tracking several metrics that are consistent with what the Northam administration and the Virginia Department of Health have been using here and you're also listing Virginia's r- risk as high at the moment. Um, can you just uh, e- explain what that means and how Virginia compares to the rest of the country, to the best of your knowledge? The the way the threat scores vis-a-vis COVID work is is looking at a couple of the metrics that, that are basically fundamental to a state or county's uh, sort of resilience to COVID. And that's looking at the infection growth rate itself, i.e. how many people are actually becoming infected with COVID-19, but also a lot of the governmental response um, that's needed to be able to uh, surveil and contain the disease. So we're really talking testing and tracing. Um, so, I mean, Virginia, it, it's it's sort of a, a mixed bag in, in Virginia. Um, and the infection growth rate is under 1.0 right now, which is a good thing. It's not great. Um, it'd be, you know, you're, you're really, you're, you're crushing COVID if you're, if you have a, a number that's well below 1.0, whereas Virginia is just a, a, a hair below 1.0. Um, but the, um, contact tracing, um, capacity in Virginia, at least per best available public data, is a bit insufficient. Um, so that that is, um, at least per the analysis, um, sort of the weak spot with Virginia's response to COVID. Obviously, that contact tracing is important to the opening up. Here, our program is called Forward Virginia. I think that there's a template, you know, it's probably being uh, rolled out across the across the nation, but, but obviously some places we're starting to see spikes of cases in Texas and other places that opened up a little earlier, but people have also been protesting and that means a lot more human contact. 
Obviously, lots of people had facial protectives, but how fast can your models, you know, for the people out there who aren't data scientists, how fast can these models and curves change? And do you anticipate them to change? Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great question. And the short answer is not that well. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you're, I think what you're kind of getting at is now casting, like, what's, what's like here and now reality on COVID, especially with protests and or the protests and all these people in really close proximity to each other, is that having an effect on the transmission of the disease? And the short answer is we don't really know um, because, uh, as we all know, there's a not uh, too short pre-symptomatic incubation period with the disease. So there's just a lot of lagging indicators in the in the data. So there's there's a you know a lag when you see an uptick of positive tests, positive cases, you know that's that's really a, a, you know those people were actually becoming infected a good number of days prior to those test data coming in. So it's um it's going to be kind of a wait and see situation. Um, I mean we are developing a tool that is aiming to to now cast. And this is this is like very much a sort of research project, you know, mad scientist kind of kind of thing. Like we're looking at mobility data and real time hospital mission data for flu like symptoms, and looking at ways to sort of cut down that lag period um, and, and provide more sort of real time uh, monitoring and surveillance of the disease. But nobody has done that before, and there's no formula to do it. And um, but I mean, there would obviously be immense value if it could be done reasonably well. So we're actively experimenting with it. But to your question, right now, no, there is no hard and fast way of knowing exactly what's going to happen with the disease, especially vis-a-vis the protests. Yeah. Well, I think that's why it's been crucial. I think that's why it's been crucial, at, at least for all the briefings here in Virginia, to keep, you know, at the very least, the only thing we really do know is that if you wear a mask and if you do the physical distancing and take these steps, you do reduce the chances that you're a vector yourself. And obviously, but, but, but just a question, you know, as a data science, you know, increasingly we live in a world where data runs everything and there is all this available information that's out there. And, you know, to a data scientist, actually, would you call yourselves all data scientists? I, I am certainly not a data scientist, but there are many data scientists on the team. Uh, we, yeah, there, there's, plenty of that expertise um, on the organization, just just not me personally. Yeah. Yeah. Because here in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, we have a pretty, I mean, there's a brand new school of data science at the University of Virginia. There's a lot of people here who are working in the data sector. And I don't understand it, but I understand it to a certain extent, uh, just in terms of what happens. And of course, you know, as a communicator and somebody who's trying to just make people realize that data is, you know, like it, it doesn't necessarily solve our problems, but it helps us get to the solutions. And it sounds like that's what you, you guys are trying to do. How well do you think you've done so far in terms of shaping the narrative of how people understand these very complicated factors and, and vectors and all sorts of data combinations? Uh, decently well, decently well. I mean, there's, um, I, I think given the circumstances, um, I, I think we've, we've, Put in a pretty solid effort and, and done a done a half decent job. Um, I mean, I think with more resources, more capacity, and the benefit of hindsight, there's 
certainly ways that we could have approached it better. But I, I mean, I think we, we've like pretty much run at the perceived problem or the like the perceived blind spots in terms of understanding what the disease is doing and and tried to squarely address those blind spots and provide visibility. Well, it certainly is. I think it's been useful because I think the public really needs assistance sometimes when there are these complex issues and and there are no easy solutions day to day. Yeah, yeah, I really, I really agree with that. One last question, if you don't mind. Um, did you ever expect you to be doing this kind of work uh, at at a time such as this? No, this is totally unexpected. And really, every person organization was doing something else when COVID happened and all of us sort of um, felt the need to sort of rise to the situation or the occasion and um, sort of contribute to this effort. So, yeah, a total right-hand turn. I mean, I, it's, it's changed lives in uh, ways much more direct than it has, say, mine or others with the organization, people who've been directly affected by the disease or lost a job or other, you know, second order, serious life-changing effects from the pandemic. Um, But, you know, at least in, you know, comparatively modest ways, it's it's still been quite a life shift the last couple of months. Um, And immensely fascinating, educational and and challenging, certainly meaningful. Um, but, But to your question, totally unexpected. I, I just really appreciate you taking the time to produce this and get good information out there. And um, I mean, I, I think as you mentioned, alluded earlier, the, the best practices are pretty simple. It's, you know, keep distance from others whenever possible, wear a face covering. And, um, you know, if all of us do that, that should really have a lot of collective benefit in slowing the, the disease and, you know, watching the data and the numbers closely will be helpful too, and that's what we're trying to do. So, um, thanks for the opportunity to, to highlight all of these these themes and issues. That was Jonathan Christ Tompkins of the group COVID Act Now speaking with me this past Wednesday about Virginia's medium COVID risk level. And this has been another edition of the Charlottesville Quarantine Report. We'll be back in the future with more information and we'll bring it to you as much as we can. We were producing a radio version of the show, which had sort of changed the format a little. And uh, so shows were coming out uh, towards the end of the week. Uh, that is now over. The, the The radio station is 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 either going off. The, well, it is going off the air. Uh, so now this podcast is it. So if you enjoy this program, I really need your help in making sure that we can get it to more people. This is a community service that I'm doing for free. And uh, but it, I really do want to make sure that this gets to people. We have a long way to go through this pandemic and we still have the potential for more spikes. And uh, we have hope potentially in the form of lots of things, but we have lots to talk about. And that's what this show is for. And I really do hope that you will join me. If you will, uh, if you want to get in touch with me, shoot me an email to wordcast at gmail.com. Or you can find me. I'm pretty findable. I'm Sean Tubbs, and thank you for listening.